And welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined today by senior TechCrunch reporter Natasha Moscarenas. How are you? How's life? I am doing well. I'm doing better than SVB right now. Did you see the news Ooh. this morning? Spicy. Uh, (laughs) So we we put together the script the day before, you know, as we always do, kind of the notes doc. And then in the meantime, Silicon Valley Bank decided to lose half its value. (gasps) Yeah, I missed that. Oh, Marianne. (laughs) Okay, here's the TLDR from memory. So I might be missing a key component here. But Silicon Valley Bank is going to issue a bunch of stock, do a private placement with General Atlantic, and also issue uh, some convertible bonds that'll convert into shares later on. So dilution. They also divested a lot of their investments that were kind of like baked in at lower interest rates back in the ye old days, taking a big charge from that, but then they can put all that capital in at a higher interest rate. So their net interest margin will improve. And the company also said that, look, deposits are down because we expected startups to cut their burn when their venture capital went down and that hasn't happened. So deposits are kind of flowing out. Investors have taken all of this about as well as a truck to the face and sent the company's stock down by about 46% before we hit record. Oh my God, that's shocking. Oh, thank you for that explanation. I don't know how I missed it. Yeah. More to come, I feel like, but that's your intro for you, everyone. Welcome back to Equity and Us Three. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, is this the first time it's just been us three since yes. I got back? Oh, it is. Yes. Virtual hug. Big old virtual hugs. <laughs> you know, the show has had many iterations throughout the years. We've worked with great people, but the three of us have always had a special place in my heart. So it's lovely to be back. Oh, same. And Marianne, before we talk about the flow of the show, FinTech, Marianne, Austin, usual intro. How you doing? You know, I'm good. I think... I am sick of hearing about South by Southwest. (laughs) Honestly, like the city gets invaded. It's crazy. You can't go anywhere. Always falls during spring break and my birthday week. So I'm a little grumpy. I'll be honest with you. I know I should be like more pumped about it, but I get grumpy around South by Southwest. However, I'm excited because TechCrunch does have a mixer happening on Saturday that I'm looking forward to. Yes. And I've been, VCs have emailed me asking if I was going and I said, we're having a mixer because that was all planned while I was on leave. (laughs) So we are having a mixer. And Marianne, are you going to go? I am absolutely going to be there and I'm excited. Oh, that's fun. I mean, I was about to say like, even saying the phrase South by Southwest is going to ruin our inboxes. But now Marianne, you especially, (laughs) now that people even know you're in the nearby vicinity, it's going to be a lot. No, I'm not going to be around though. So, you know, don't email me. Fun. (laughs) I don't do that. Fun is for other people. Thus spake Marianne. So run down to the show quickly. Three deals of the week. We're talking Romy, Qualtrics, and the Upfront Summit. Then our first theme is going to be all about the boom in startups supporting folks who have ADHD. Then we're going to talk about fintech in Q1. Marianne had a fascinating investor survey that we need to parse and learn from. Spoiler alert, payments, big deal. And then we're going to talk about female VCs and branding predicated on a Natasha piece she put out recently that I thought was fantastic. And then we'll close whatever time we have left on how to not fire someone publicly on Twitter if your last name rhymes with Tusk. There we go. Let's do it. All right. Marianne, we're going to kick off with a not Airbnb, not hotel, third way centrist solution called Romy. What's going on? Yeah. So hi, I wrote about a startup called Romy, which is an interesting name and actually much better than the original name of the company, which was Sextant Stays. 
So this prop tech is out to take on Airbnb, which we always love it when there's startups trying to take on the, these big players like Airbnb. Although this company has been around for about seven years, so it's not like super new. But basically what it's trying to do is give people a place to stay that is not a hotel, not a small little cramped hotel, but also not, you know, like a whole house or Airbnb where you have to pay $50 million in fees, but a place where you can kind of stay more comfortably for like a week or so, basically like an apartment. And it's it's getting into the real estate business too, because it's actually looking to buy the apartment buildings, you know, run them and manage them and then help rent them out. It's an interesting business model. It's not the only startup out there doing something similar to this. There's Sonder as well. Right. But it's just a different take. Yeah. I mean, like purely operationally, the idea of owning the properties that you then connect guests to makes so much sense. I mean, Airbnb has been doing this for years. A bunch of Wall Street firms have done this as well. It's not just the neighborhood mom and pop owned Airbnbs that we're getting connected to. So I feel like they are taking a habit and a subset of something that's already been out on the market and trying to make it their entire focus, which I mean, in order to get attention and to be such a highly capitalized and massive competitor such as Airbnb, I have to have respect for yeah, taking them on can't be easy. It's no. like saying, I'm going to get into the operating system game. Microsoft, you're next. Like, you know, it takes a bit of gumption. I like the Romy model because it actually suits my personal needs. I'm not fun, so I don't want an Airbnb in a treehouse that I have to clean <laughs> myself because that sounds terrifying. And every hotel room that I stay in for like a TechCrunch event, by the third day, feels like a shoebox that has been shrunk. You know, so if I could rent a one bedroom apartment for a week, have a kitchen, stretch out a little bit, make it feel kind of like home in a way, that would be great for me because I really do best when I'm traveling. If I have a, a center of operations that feels secure and safe because I'm a homebody and that's just kind of what I like. So I can see myself using Romy. I looked up their New Orleans locations. Frankly, they seemed kind of priced where I thought they would be and they seemed pretty reasonable. And so long as the quality is high, I can see myself actually using this. So I'm kind of pro. Yeah. There are beautiful properties, I agree. And currently the company operates about 500 units across mainly South Florida and New Orleans. So it's it's not really yet expanded geographically. I assume that's the plan. They just raised 14 million of equity and venture debt. The CEO claims that they got multiple term sheets, but decided in the end to partner with a Miami-based venture firm called Vigo Capital that's really focused exclusively in hospitality and multifamily. So I think this will be a fun one to pay attention to. One other thing that I really want to mention that impressed me, the company has an impressive amount of revenue already. I think it was $40 million in revenue in 2022 and said that revenue grew 800% over the last three years. So those numbers are, you know, they caught my attention. That is impressive. And I think that actually adds exactly to the point I was about to make, Marianne, which is I'm kind of surprised to not see a bigger more well-known venture firm on the cap table. Like I feel like this has A16Z all over it just based on recent investments I've been covering from them in the real estate and flexibility space, which is no shade to this VC firm. It actually makes me more interested in the VC firm right. and the startup right. that it doesn't have, let's say, active and out loud investment firms on its cap table. I kind of, I like being surprised. Agreed. What is the Adam Newman company called? Flow. 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 Didn't it raise like a, like a huge multiple of this venture round? An embarrassing amount more. And I actually think to connect flow with this, with even Airbnb, I feel like a lot of like the real estate companies are focused on this term around flexibility, but everyone is thinking of it in such different ways. Like some are thinking of it as like 
Do you want to own the place that you have to stay once a week every year? Like imagine, Alex, if you partially owned the apartment that you stay in whenever you come to SF or Disrupt. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's like so many different ways people are like fragmenting it. So I think there's going to be some consolidation. I think the founder said that in the piece, but clearly it's like a sector to pay attention to. Yeah. And Flow raised 350 million for those interested. In a mix of equity and something. We don't know if it's just venture capital. So it's a mix of equity and something else. Chuck E. Cheese tokens, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Bitcoin. You never know. You never know. It's true. Well, I'm excited about the company and to go from 5 million to 40 million in a couple of years is an impressive. And that's my extrapolation of the 800% thing that I could be doing the math wrong. But anyways, the point is that's cool. You know what else is cool? Almost going public, selling, going public again, and then selling yourself again. Welcome to the world of Qualtrics, the company that cannot decide where it should be. It's back. Again, I feel like this has been such a recurring motif on the show over the years, but Qualtrics, if you're not familiar, does, I think it's called like experience management, a lot of pulse surveys, keeping track of what people think and want inside of corporate worlds. It's a big business. People want to know what's going on inside their operations. And so the company sold the SAP back in 2018 for $8 billion. It was later spun out in 2021 at a rough valuation of about $15.3 billion, according to our reporting. It's market cap, Natasha, soared all the way to 28 $8 billion, which is many billions. That's more than two dozen billion. That's many. And then it went down to like six during the great tech sell-off. And now it's going to sell to a collection of, you know, amorphous private equity vehicles for about 12, 12 and a half billion. So a success, but a, such a weird one. Like most companies don't go through this kind of amount of chewing. And so I just kind of wanted to get your guys' vibe. Like, okay, Qualtrics is going private again. Do you think it's the last time we're going to have to have this conversation? I mean, I remember when SAP bought the company a few years ago, and it wasn't it like the largest acquisition of a startup ever at the time? Or It was up there. It was, it yeah. was absolutely huge. It was massive, $8 billion. And then it feels like it was just very anticlimactic, right? It's like, they bought it, they paid a fortune for it, but like didn't seem very excited about it. You know, it was it was sort of weird. So it's not entirely shocking that we're in this scenario. I do think that 12 billion to me does seem like a fair price, especially considering that I think it was only was it only valued at like six something last year? Yeah, it went down to like six, 6.5 billion. The public markets really beat it up. It, it has kind of the same issues that a lot of tech companies have, which is that its growth is decelerating because the global economy is also slowing. So a lot of companies are doing that. But the issue with Qualtrics is that if I recall, its share-based compensation expenses are pretty high. And so it's paying employees in stock, which is dilutive to its existing shareholders. And if the company isn't growing very quickly and is spending a lot of money on diluting your stake, do you really want to hold that stock? Right. With the M&A market, with late stage companies, I feel like we can't have anything nice these days. Like no one can just exit in peace. And I feel like I'm like banging on the door being like, give us something. But the the reason this is like coming to mind too is Adobe and Figma. I don't know if you guys talked about it on the pod last week, the update in the FTC looking at it. And I feel like it's kind of this like funny thing of like Adobe and Figma was like celebrated as this $20 billion, the biggest dollar deal last year. And now the government is trying to block it in some way. We don't know if it's going to actually happen or not. And I just feel like There's a lot of this back and forth and kind of like drama happening in the exit market, which is for us very fun to watch, but for employees and investors, not so much. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine like the Qualtrics employee who joined like one round before they almost went public and has just been like cockroaching their way through just surviving. It's almost like a certain media brand that I really know and love that when I first joined was owned by one corporate conglomerate. 
and was then sold to an even larger one and then was rebranded internally and then was later broken off and then fused into a aging internet giant and called something else under a different owner. You know, that would be a strange experience. <laughs> Who's that? I don't know her. It might be tech, techcrunch.com? <laughs> tech brunch. Tech brunch. <laughs> Why did we ever do that? That should have been a thing back in San Francisco. That would have been fun. <gasps> okay. You should do that. That's yeah, a great idea. That is the a tech great brunch, idea. tech brunch. Yeah. I would love that. All right. I can, I'll fly out for that. All right. Let's get someone to give me budget for that. That would be amazing. Yeah. I'll, I'll call <laughs> the CEO of uh, who owns us? Apollo? Something like that. Anyways, the point is, the question is, will anyone bid more for Qualtrics? Probably not. It's a valuation mark. If you're a startup and you care about late stage valuations, take a look. But let's put that behind us and talk instead about more early stage stuff. Natasha, you went to a cool conference and learned that there's only one flavor of ice cream out there in Ventureland. <laughs> And what is that, Alex? It might be AI. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yes, I just got back from the Upfront Summit. So if I sound sick, it's because the conference bug is fully going around. And I think whether you're at ETH Denver or going to South by Southwest, you may experience the same thing. But the summit was super fun. I heard about it a while ago because it's this like super exclusive invite only venture conference. And they don't focus on press, which obviously makes the press want to go more. And I feel like I saw all my favorite journalists, but also a lot of like the VCs that have been feeling our reporting. It was like a nice boost of energy, honestly. And I think there's a lot to be said when you know that VCs are talking to a room full of their investors versus a room full of founders. Mm -hmm. And I don't often sit in an audience with just LPs and VCs, which makes the point that I'm leading up to even more interesting, which is that they all were talking about AI. Almost every panel I went to and, and was a part of, including my own, where I was interviewing the Cape Port Capital folks, AI was brought up. And I just feel like they are signaling to LPs, hoping that LPs are excited about the hype and hoping that that means that they'll write checks like when they raise their fund. So definitely a different vibe. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I did not realize that that was like the audience and, and the vibe. And I love that it's sort of low key and not like too flashy. So and it sounds like it was a lot of fun. It was definitely flashy in that there was a marching band and there was like oh, a <laughs> illusion, illusion magician who said, do not call him a magician. So I'm not going to call him a magician. So there was a lot of like these quirky tech VC conference things but very different and that there weren't founders and no one was trying to pitch me. So I finally got to be a fly on the wall. My only complaint, if this is allowed to be one, is that the equity summit was that week too. And as a result, lots of dudes at the upfront summit. And I think the equity summit is more focused on diverse people in venture. I think it was like 90% women, the conference. So I think that was felt a little bit, but I mean, I still met amazing people and I still, you know, mostly talked to women. So I had a great time. There you go. So <laughs> I want to dig more into the AI thing though, because it, it doesn't seem like people were really going rah, rah, rah. This is going to be, you know, tomorrow, the biggest thing ever. There was a little more caution in the conversation. Yes, exactly. I think the angle I really wanted to write about was like, are we going to see anything different than what we see on Twitter when it comes to talking about AI? And I'm happy that it actually was because it was a lot of like kind of hedging the bets. It's easy to be like AI is the future, but a lot of VCs instead were kind of saying AI is a big deal. We know it's a seminal moment in tech. It's not a fad, but we're still a long way from it being everything and anywhere and beating all of our jobs, which to me is just different than what we saw with Web3 and even like grocery delivery companies. I feel like there's a lot more like exuberance and blindness for those sectors. And, you know, Dick Costolo, who's the managing partner at O1 Advisors, a former CEO of Twitter, was kind of saying like, it's hard not to be hyperbolic when it comes to talking about AI. And so I feel like that summed up the tone in general. Everyone was kind of like, we know better this time, but it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's actually not such a bad thing, like that VCs are being a little more <laughs> cautious and not just like going crazy, right? I mean, look what happened with Web3. 
But I also feel like AI, I mean, because this is building up for years, and I feel like part of it has to do with the fact that there is a little bit of a negative connotation with AI. There are some people who are very afraid of it, who argue that it's going to, you know, take people's jobs, all this stuff. So there's still that sort of stigma associated with AI that I feel like mainstream hasn't, you know, is not there yet. So I feel like that's another reason why investors also might be proceeding a little bit cautiously. And maybe that's just me speculating. But but I do think, you know, you have to kind of win over mainstream and like crypto went mainstream quicker than I expected. AI is getting there with chat GBT, I think. But I feel like that does play a factor here. I think someone, I think it was Shira Ovide who wrote that AI has a PR problem. And I couldn't agree more. It has such a yeah, problem. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And that's why I was kind of surprised to hear them not be super, super exuberant about it. Like they talked about it, but they weren't like, this is everything. Because they are very incentivized for it to happen otherwise. Right. But Alex, you kind of came back to this weird world. So like, are you, how are you feeling about AI being everywhere and every panel? Like, does that feel something you're breaking up on in your interviews? What's the PR problem with AI? I feel like AI is freaking crushing the PR game. I can't go on a subreddit without someone being like, Haha, I use ChatGPT to remake the Crusader Kings 3 dialogue scripts. <laughs> like people are loving this. It always has a weight. But did you think about like, I, I feel like there's always some sort of hedge, even ChatGPT, right? Like, I think there's a lot of excitement about it. But the other day we were kind of laughing about how like it's not creating, it's aggregating and repackaging. And the argument I think is more like AI rarely can be talked about without also addressing all the concerns around it. Beyond Twitter, I'm saying more so. <laughs> and I'm very sympathetic to that. I mean, I think we all know about algorithmic bias. And, you know, if you have a, a skewed data set, you can end up with a skewed model. To me, having that part of the conversation isn't a, a PR issue. It's more of a motif that indicates a mature conversation. Like we're not talking about this in a unidirectional way. We're talking about this from a more holistic perspective. Like we have all the shit in one bucket, all the good and the bad. And that to me is healthy. I mean, how many AI booms have we covered? I mean, I've covered at least two. Yeah. And this is the first time when things feel different because one, people actually want to use this stuff. Microsoft is using it. Every startup is trying to use it. Consumers just love playing with it, right? And then also we seem to better understand the issues with it. So to me, this feels pretty positive. And so the the VC, ooh, you know, don't want to oversell it. I almost am like, no, this is the time you should be super bullish because it does actually feel like there's real consumer demand for this. Like how fast did Chad GBT go from no one's heard of it to lunch table conversation and in use in real products? Yeah. Crypto, I still can't figure out what I'm supposed to do with it. Chad GPT, everyone gets it immediately. So to me, it's hot. It has like the emotion and, and kind of like, yeah, mainstreamification of it. That's hard to ignore. Yeah. And just to be clear, I love Shira. So like no disagreement with her. And she's one of the best reporters and columnists out there on the space. I just, I think I would disagree a little bit with that framing. We love disagreements on the show. Are you kidding? I, we love polite <laughs> disagreements on the show. That's right. It's all very collegial. Let's move on to an interesting realm of startup work, which is accessibility and mental health kind of coming together to create a new set of products designed to help people with ADHD better interface with technology. And there's a browser that we covered over on TechCrunch.com that is trying to create a less noisy work environment. And as the three of us live in a Slack convo, I mean, I feel like we have like nine communication tools. It's so busy. It's hard to get anything done. So to me, this idea from Psychic to have a productivity browser aimed at folks with ADHD sounds very appealing to me, even though I don't, I don't have that particular diagnosis. Absolutely. I mean, I have to say like, honestly, most days I can't even start writing stories until 
after five o'clock because I am so overwhelmed by the the constant emails, the constant Slack messages, right? Like meetings, calls, whatever, you know, Twitter DMs, my feed. So I totally get that. I can't even imagine like people who really do have ADHD, like having to deal with all this stimuli as well. So I love, love the idea of this productivity browser. I think it's fascinating. I think it's brilliant. And if it really works, I mean, this could be huge. And I I, I like the fact, I think that they're smart. Sidekick is smart as framing it as a corporate sell, right? So like selling it to companies and saying, hey, this can help your employees stay a little more focused, more productive. I love it. Like, I love this idea of having things blocked and disabled and all of that. It sounds awesome. I completely agree about the kind of employer angle. That's honestly what stuck out to me the most with this mm-hmm. startup. It's called Sidekick. A few weeks ago, we talked about Disclo, which is trying to make it easier for people within organizations to disclose their disabilities and then get support that they need for it. And I feel like it tugs at my heartstrings a little bit to see one, I mean, base minimum caring about people. That's one thing, but also employers willing to spend money on it during a downturn. I don't know if my bar is just that low, but I'm yeah. just happy to hear that it's a focus in some sort, especially because there are like free, th- this is the issue is that there are free like add ons and Google Chrome extensions that do this. Yeah. But this is all together, right? Yeah. It's all together, packaged together, which makes it, I think, a bigger sell or a better sell. But I mean, and overall, though, another reason we're talking about this, though, is just that there seems to be a lot of attention lately on the part of investors toward ADHD startups, right? There's been several in the space that have recently raised money besides Sidekick and Inflow, which we talked about earlier this year. I liked Numo, which is an app for adults that kind of gamifies tasks and so forth. Like that would tickle my brain in the right way because I still haven't booked my train ticket for uh, the early stage event we're doing in Boston in April. <laughs> and uh, every day I'm like, we're doing it today. And then every day I finish work and I'm like, I didn't do it. So I, I <laughs> what I'm saying here is I think that the market for these products is probably a bit broader than just mm-hmm. folks who have an active ADHD diagnosis. Right. I think we could, a lot of us could use this stuff. Right. Yeah. Obviously, us three can't speak from our own specific experiences on what we need or don't need. So I do want to just like make that huge disclosure of like, sure, I'm sure someone with ADHD may take this differently or want more or want something different. But a focus on it and just like the fact that these startups are exploding as it becomes harder to access medicine for this like is a tech story. And it's I'm really happy we're talking about it on the podcast. And not just the fact that it's harder to get the medicine, but like also some people just want an alternative to medication, right? They just would rather not go the medicinal route. So like having these other more behavioral or other sorts of options is, is great. Like to have more than ever, like to choose from and try is not a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Big agree. And I'll just add one more little note before we move on accessibility in general seems to be a rising topic in tech. And I have to say back to heartstrings being tugged, that makes me very happy. Like technology yes. should be accessible. If it's not, then it's failing as a technological product in my view. And so we should do better and we can. And so it's cool to see in our little space, a intersection of uh, doing better and maybe also adventure level returns. We'll have to see. Yes. Yeah. Say it louder. That's amazing. All right. So speaking of venture though, <laughs> uh, you know, when you're on your bike, and you go, you go up a hill and it's great. And you go down a hill and it's scary. Fintech is doing that right now, Marianne. Things, <laughs> things don't look so hot in Fintech Wait. fundraising land. I hate biking up hills and I love going down hills. Yeah. Let's be so clear, problem, Alex Wilhelm. <laughs> the problem with the fact that we don't script the show, we just have a, like bullet points of facts that we refer to, is that the transitions are unwritten. And sometimes what you do is you say them in reverse 
by accident. And then you get called out by your dear friend who points out that exercise is actually trash. Yes. Thank and you. I, I agree. Um, TLDR, fintech funding, not so great. But Marianne talked to a number of fintech investors about what's going on and what's hot in Q1. Marianne, please save my bacon. Oh my God. You guys kill me. It's so funny. Um, you know, I, yeah, I did. I surveyed seven investors and they were actually very thoughtful in their responses, which was nice. You know, they didn't just like spout off a bunch of jargon or like PR speak. And overall, the vibe is like, okay, yes, yes, things have been difficult. It's been challenging. It's been rough. But there's kind of this light at the end of the tunnel, this kind of normalization of we're not freaking out and investing every fintech that comes across our desk is actually not such a bad thing. I feel like investors are relieved, some of them anyway, that they're not having to to write checks so quickly, can take a little more time to make deals. When it came to like certain sectors that they're interested in, of course, the two that keep coming up and have been for a long time are B2B payments and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And also another thing that came up that's also not a surprise, but it's, it's kind of this normalization of down rounds. Like before, I mean, even just like a last summer, it was like this evil thing. And we've talked about this last week too, I think, but it's like this evil thing. Oh my God, down round, down round. Now it's just really, I feel like it's normal. And again, the alternative is raise a down round, go out of business get acquired, which is much harder, go public, which is even harder, right? So when you're, when you're faced with all these alternatives, yeah, like raising a down round becomes a lot more appealing. On the subject of areas of focus, the thing that stood out to me the most, apart from the fact that apparently B2B payments has an infinite TAM that everyone's going to attack in bite-sized pieces, was the kind of CFO thing. And I believe the investor from Minlo said they're very interested in the CFO stock, office of the CFO stuff. And then later on, Ansar Kareem from Lightspeed said that uh, the CFO stack as an idea doesn't seem to have played out in a meaningful way yet. And so we are seeing a little bit of divergence in strategy in terms of where people are putting capital to work. So Marianne, I'm just very curious, what is the CFO stack and uh, where do you stand on this great dust up between two fine venture capital firms? That's a very good question. I feel like there are more companies trying to attack this area of fintech. I think it's a very challenging thing to do though. And I I don't think it's going to be easy for startups to be successful here. There's just a lot going on, you know, in the CFO stack. So I kind of honestly see both sides of it. I think it's going to take special kind of startup to do well in this space. That's why Marianne lives in the middle of the nation. So she can take the middle of the road point in the argument. <laughs> diplomacy. That's my middle name. I know. Marianne is actually one of the most diplomatic people, which is why the occasional moment when she really unloads on something like NFTs, <laughs> we remember it. Forever. Yeah. I mean, but you know, hey, fintech, honestly, in general, I mean, you were kind enough to pull up a chart, Alex, showed a fairly large surge in capital invested in March, which is pretty typical. Often the last month and a quarter, you see a bump up as deals are announced. We don't know if that was skewed by any particular large deals, but I don't remember any really big deals happening in March unless I'm blanking. I pulled an 18 month chart of venture dollars and deal volume for just fintech tech companies and pitch books. So a pretty basic search. And Natasha, if you look at the, the brown line on this chart that of course our listeners can't hear, that's yeah. the deal count trajectory. It's super negative. And so to me, the occasional one month variation from the trend here, which is a decline in rounds and dollars is less important than the overall trajectory. Like Marianne, you're not expecting 
a return to old venture levels in fintech. Oh God, no, no, not at all. And definitely deal count is down. There's no question about it. And interestingly, most of the pitches I get are for like seed rounds these Mm, days. mm -hmm. I mean, very early stage. I would say the majority of pitches are for seed rounds. That's interesting. If I had to sum up like what a sector like fintech from reading your story and looking at that chart, I feel like flat is the new up and Mm -hmm. down is the new flat (laughs) and up is just like, who knows where that is. And I feel like there's like this really, yeah, I don't know, this confusing push and pull between I'm sure the anecdotes, like just the other day, BCV was like, we're in 2021 valuations again. Like this is crazy. And other people are like, AI valuations are completely changing everything again. So I do think there's like these weird flashes in the pan. But I'm really happy to have the data to be like, we know how things are actually happening, at least now. Well, let's put the data aside and shift over to some anecdotes or anecdata, if you will, because Natasha, you wrote a really fascinating piece about female VCs and bias inherent to their work and branding that works off of a couple of examples of people that you spoke to about how they're handling this issue. And I thought it was fascinating. So thank you. What's the thesis and what can we do? Thank you. And also it was International Women's Day earlier this week. So I'm really glad we get to talk about it this week. I was out last week, so perfect timing. But this story really began because I'm starting to hear from more female VCs, especially emerging fund managers, kind of this tension that exists when they launch their debut funds, but then they're only seen as female VCs who back female founders or female VCs who back D2C companies, you know, dress startups, wedding dress registry companies, which no shade to those companies, but kind of like they're looked at as a very gendered type of investor. And I finally heard enough examples that I teamed up with Becca to talk about how kind of the bias that exists with even just being a female VC has impacted the way people build their firms. And I really set on this one story from Leslie Feinzag from Graham & Walker, who rebranded her venture firm from Female Founders Alliance to Graham & Walker in 2021. And the idea was that For her, and this is her words, not mine, where she would enter a meeting and it would be like, hi, I'm Leslie. I am the founder of Female Founders Alliance. She was treated differently then compared to now being treated as a more, I think, neutral sounding name. It sounds like a law firm. And she kind of loves that it sounds like kind of this old law firm run by two old white dudes, Graham and Walker. She's being treated differently. She thinks it kind of expands the vision and when she started raising money for her fund, LPs even received it differently. They didn't just think it was focused on diversity. So I'll pause there. But I thought it was this really interesting example of how you can kind of see bias and also react to it, even if you're still going to invest in diverse founders, which they still are, despite the name change. Yeah. First off, amazing story. You guys did a great job reporting this out. Uh, Super interesting. I love that Leslie that they chose this name because Catherine Graham was the first female Fortune 500 CEO and Madame or Madame CJ Walker was the first female self-made millionaire. A couple of thoughts here. Like I remember a few years ago when we would report on startups that were run by women, we would include like female led and the headline and then that stopped, right? Because we're like, why do we, why should we be pointing this out? I mean, why? Is it like so unique or hard to believe that a woman could be running a startup that just raised all this money? And we stopped doing that, right? Because, because it's like, why? Why do we need to do that? I think the same thing comes with pitches still, which is unfortunate. But yeah, I'm really glad we've stopped doing it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think about that. And I thought about that when I read your story. And um, and I thought about Leslie's challenges and trying to raise for her fund. And on one hand, it's a little bit sad that she she felt like she needed to change it. Like that kind of bothered me a bit because it's like, oh, what? You can't be taken seriously if you have female founders in your name. On the other, you know, I am I am happy to see that she's seeing benefits from having the name yeah. change. 
I'm annoyed by all of this because not only do you have to fight to get into the room and then to get into a boys club industry and then you get into a boys club firm, then you build your own firm in the space. And even then, after you've clawed and fought and kicked down doors and jumped over walls, you arrive and you have to tweak your branding as well to still get around systemic gender bias. Yeah, it's so hard to see. And I think like I struggle with this as a reporter because I'm like, do I want to just like say stories of people going through shit? Or do I want to like bring something new to the story? But I I have landed on, I think, awareness is important and also reminding people that this is going to become a bigger issue. So to the men reading the story, like they should see that and maybe understand why did I pitch one of my few female VC colleagues, this company that's building a D2C alternative oat milk based coffee brand. Like, why did I do that? Is it because I think that they invest in coffee brands or is it because I'm focused on hard tech and Ah. I think VCs coming from underrepresented backgrounds are more interested in coffee brands, which I mean, I love coffee, but I wouldn't invest in it is what one VC told me. And then there was in your article, you mentioned that like one VC that has a male co-founder complained of kind of like the opposite bias where she said like the male co-founder doesn't get pitched certain types of companies that might be that have more of like this female focus, which is also shouldn't happen, I think. Right. Yeah. I know. I didn't really realize that like commerce was supposed to, you know, shopping at large was only something that female VCs. But yes, uh, one one VC mentioned that their partner actually like does invest in commerce, but isn't pitched it. So it's this awkward. And I think there's a lot of more examples. I think for every one person who spoke to us, there's probably dozens other. But hopefully the story just like makes people rethink a little bit about when they send that quick email or that quick, I think this would be good for you story. I mean, right. that's what I'm really hoping the ripple effects are. And we, we did talk about this a bit on Equity Wednesday, actually a ton over the past few weeks. And we'll, we'll link that in the show notes. But one from Kaiza who talked about just female VCs backing only female founders in and of itself was also not good for companies. So there's a lot of nuance there. Oh, yeah, it's hard. It's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. Yeah, because also we we know that women in the US control the majority of household spend that's a, a data point you probably want to have people who understand that demographic and want to fund businesses that will treat it with proper respect and care. So that makes some sense. But also you don't want to silo and pigeonhole women. Yeah. Right. It just goes to show how hard it is to change society. Even though we've made progress, holy crap, we still have ways to go. And uh, speaking of having a ways to go, some people aren't yet actually nice people. And we saw a couple of examples of this on the old Twitter. Elon Musk decided to get into a dust up with one of his employees who was then no longer his employee, but didn't know if he was employed or not. And Elon Musk managed to commit, I think the Best series of stepping on rake, rake hitting face I've ever seen from a CEO on Twitter. Ladies and gentlemen, Elon Musk. Ugh, the whole situation, we wrote about it, but just the idea of mocking an employee with a disability, publicly mocking your own employee with a disability. I mean, I don't even think we need to say to our listeners why this is severely problematic. My only addition is that in Elon's somewhat apology, if we can call it that, he kind of says that it's a long story and it's better to talk to people than communicate via tweet. He said he apologized to Hallie for his misunderstanding of the situation. It was based on things I was told that were untrue or in some cases true, but not meaningful. He is considering remaining at Twitter. Oh my God. Okay. I mean, all right. First of all, publicly mocking an employee, like you said, I mean, that just sucks to begin with. You don't, you don't just, you don't do that. But then he, he has the nerve to say at one point, he responds to a tweet from the guy, which I mean, how can you 
to even have to be questioning whether or not you were laid off from like such a large company is pathetic. Like you should know if you were laid off. You shouldn't have to be asking this on Twitter. It's just pitiful and unbelievable. But then Musk responds to his tweets asking him, what work have you been doing when the guy apparently he says he saved the company? Like, was it half a million dollars last year on some contract? Yeah, on their Figma deal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, okay, picks or it didn't happen. What are we in third grade. I mean, give me a break, picks or it didn't happen. And then Musk tweets, the reality is that this guy who was independently wealthy, did no actual work, claimed as his excuse that he had a disability that prevented him from typing, yet was simultaneously tweeting up a storm. Could he not get sued for this? I mean, this is so insulting and like wrong and offensive on so many levels. Like, how on earth could you tweet this as a CEO of a company? Like, I'm just shocked. Unfortunately, if you're one of the richest, I think he's the richest person in the world again. Yeah. I mean, top, top three, you know, dead or alive. Right. Like you don't get sued and, or you do, but you don't ever worry about it. And so I think we included it because it feels like too important not to talk about these examples. And I feel like apathy towards Elon, even though I know us three have it in varying degrees, is an issue in and of itself. (laughs) The reason why I wanted it on the show, apart from the fact that we get to kind of riff a little bit on, on one of our favorite topics is that I, I think it cuts away at the narrative that Elon Musk is somehow a genius when it comes to managing tech companies <laughs> and it is the model for everyone to follow. Because there was a collective, oh, really? When he cut so much of the engineering staff and the site didn't crash immediately. Now, Musk has promised a great many features that haven't come out. So it's obviously clear that engineering momentum hasn't increased since he took over and fired everybody. Um, But this, I think, just goes to show how poorly managed the company currently is and how Musk is not a panacea to technology company issues. It's now fashionable amongst tech VCs. Keith Raboy did this recently to essentially claim that most people at tech companies are are doing fake work, which I, I don't think is true. But here's an example of this kind of in the wild. And Musk tried to walk it back, I presume, due to pressure from his lawyers, because they must have been ringing up his phone. But what a mess. And uh, it goes to show that you shouldn't meet your heroes or follow their tweets. <laughs> Snapping, if you can hear it. All right. Uh, we're, we're way over time. If you're still with us on your podcast app, thanks. We appreciate it. A couple of short notes before we go. You can follow the show on Twitter, Equity Pod. I'm Alex on Twitter. Natasha is N-M-A-S-C underscore. Mary Ann is Bay Area Reporter. Bay Area Writer. Oh, Bay Area Writer. <laughs> Sorry. She's Austin City Lights Scribbler. And uh, <laughs> Equity will be back. <laughs> Equity will be back on Monday morning, bright and early, and we appreciate you all. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Too good. That's hilarious. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch senior reporters Natasha Mascarenas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.